the government has just set a standard whereby if they don't like your views, they will either freeze your bank account or put pressure on the banking industry to debank you. And good luck as an individual in this country not having a bank account in the digital age. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freedom Feature. I'm your host, Barry Bussey. With me today, we have Tom Marazzo. Tom is no stranger to our program. Tom, it's great to have you with us again. Thanks for having me back. Uh, it's always fun to be on this show. We have uh, some good rap sessions on your show, I think, often. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, Tom, tell me what what's exciting. I well, I know what's exciting. I, exciting with the fact that I saw on my Twitter feed just yesterday being the second Emergencies Act Remembrance Day uh, that there is a lawsuit mm -hmm. on the go. Yeah, there are several lawsuits uh, I'm happy to report. And uh, there's there's what's important to know is that I am part of one separate lawsuit and there are other groups out there that are also filing their own lawsuits. So, you know, I'm being represented by Keith Wilson, Eva Chipiuk, and Brendan Miller, which, you know, I hope the viewers know were the legal team that I had, well, not just myself, but represented us at the Public Order Emergency Commission. So that's, mm -hmm. that's the team I had in Ottawa, uh, Keith and Eva for the actual convoy, and then Brendan joined the band. Uh, for the Public Order Emergency Commission. And and right now we've just chosen to to basically get the band back together. So that's how we're, we're fighting the federal government in a lawsuit for freezing all of our bank accounts. You know, I tell you, when uh, Justice Mosley made that decision a few weeks ago, I was thinking about the long-term effects. And one of them, of course, is this lawsuit. It was the idea that, you know what, um, here you have... Uh, federal court rule that the government's freezing of the bank accounts was unconstitutional and violated the Charter of Rights. And he also said uh, that it could not be justified under Section 1 of the Charter. And that's the big one. That's the big uh, test that mm -hmm. all these courts have, have to follow. And here it was. He said, no, th this was totally unacceptable. It was a um, you know, violated um, the whole search and seizure. Uh, you know, it was an unreasonable search and seizure uh, by seizing those bank accounts. Yes. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Absolutely. And and so, you know, I, I want to say that uh, Justice Mosley's decision was helpful, uh, but I think it's important. And I, of course, I'm not a lawyer. Um, but you're a lawyer with a PhD, so, you know, you can correct me at any, any time you want, but you know, what's important to understand. Well, for, for, first of all, let yes, me just say Justice that, Mosley's. are you, sorry, first thing I want to say is that, uh, just because one has a PhD, I think if anything I've learned is that by scaling the mountain is kind of like mm -hmm. the Indian proverb, whereby it is that the climber climbs the mountain and when he gets right up to the very top, he looks around and he sees there are more mountains to climb. And in many ways, yeah. uh, getting a PhD is just, okay, so I got up on this hill, but the reality is 
uh, it's only a drop in the bucket to the vast amount of knowledge that's out there. But anyhow, sorry, I digress. Go ahead. No, no, that's understand. Um, so, you know, this decision, I think, was helpful, obviously, that Justice Mosley had uh, rendered a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, the, the Liberals still want to appeal. And so if the appeal is overturned yes. or, uh, you know, if the, the appeal court does say, yeah, we're going to overturn Justice Mosley's decision, then it's likely going to be kicked up to the Supreme Court. Now, right. I'm not involved in that action. That was done under Section 62 of the um, the Emergencies Act. It was a judicial review. Yeah. And that was launched by Eddie Cornell, Vince Gersey's in, in another person. Mm -hmm. And so that's where that decision resulted. And unlike the commission, the Public Order Emergency Commission, Mosley's ruling actually has teeth and it does set precedent. And so I believe for political reasons, the liberals are going to appeal it, not for legal or moral reasons uh, will they appeal it, but for political reasons. And I think that's because they're heading into an election. Right. But, you know, that decision was really, really important in, in the fact that now you have a judge who actually said, yeah, you guys didn't have the authority to do what you did. And you, you, mm -hmm. you acted outside of the law and outside of your authority. So, you know, that's incredibly helpful to us, but it still can be overturned. Even right. if it's overturned, it doesn't have an impact on our lawsuit. Mm -hmm. It's it's funny because, you know, by getting the original ruling, it does help our case. But yeah. even if it's over overturned, it's still, it doesn't hurt our case either. So that's an interesting dynamic that's developed. But, you know, our lawsuit is based on, you know, it's, it's, it's a clear section eight of the charter violation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've got in a civilized society, this charter of rights and freedoms that, you know, we, we kind of hold up as the, the standard of law and the standard of protecting people's rights against the government. So it's such an important document that it even has its own section section 24 that stipulates what is a citizen to do if the government of Canada does in fact violate your rights. And so we're using the mechanisms of section 24, I think dash one mm -hmm. to push back against our government. We are, we are using the, the legal process available to us as citizens who have had our charter rights violated right. and it's section eight of the charter that was violated the search and seizure mm -hmm. and the seizure seizure, meaning seizure of the bank accounts, right. uh, which was done unlawfully. So in my particular case, you know, I wasn't charged. I wasn't, uh, you know, convicted of a crime. Mm -hmm. And yet they went straight to punitive action, which was to seize my bank accounts. So this is really what the basis of this lawsuit is about. This is right. my, me again, exercising my democratic and my charter rights to hold my government accountable for their actions as a Canadian citizen. Yeah. Which is very admirable and it is extremely important because everybody is watching everyone who've had their rights violated are going to be paying attention uh, to see how this mm -hmm. how it results but even more than that i think it it helps educate canadians as a whole 
the importance of being willing to stand up and be counted when government overreaches and oversteps their authority. And certainly in this case, um, we saw, as Justice Mosley pointed out, that very extreme overreach. It was totally unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Now, what I'm... Uh, Absolutely. Um, yeah. So one of the things... It's so, so there's a kind of like an education going on now where Canadians are going to uh, look back and say, okay, so exactly what all happened here. And, and, I, and I think it's very important to keep this in the news uh, because uh, as Canadians, we have been so deferential toward government historically and seeing individuals mm-hmm. to say, look, no, government, you cannot do this. You are violating my rights. So, so that's, that's extremely important for us as a society going forward. We can't just simply accept a decision that's made by government and just say, okay, well, you know, it's government. It's all right if I, you know, lose my access to my bank account and all the rest of it. Tell the Canadian people what it was like for you to lose access to your bank account. Well, you know, I'm sure, you know, that's a great question because even for people that are not supporters of the convoy, you know, the clear message is whether you agree or disagree with our cause during the convoy or not, the government has just set a standard whereby if they don't like your views, they will either freeze your bank account or put pressure on the banking industry to debank you. And good luck as an individual in this country, not having a bank account in the digital age. Right. And, yeah, and remember, this was this was something they did electronically. This is like it or not, the way society has gone. Everything is based on the Internet. You know, they didn't go to my branch and say, uh, you know, showed their badge and say, we've got a warrant to close this guy's account. They did this all through electronic means. All of our accounts were frozen through electronic means. So, you know, I. A lot of Canadians don't even carry cash anymore. And many businesses are turning cash away, saying we're not accepting cash anymore, which I find a little bit scary. The takeaway for me, mm-hmm. and I'll get I'll get to the original que- uh, question in a minute, but, you know, the takeaway for me yeah. is carry cash. You know, carry yeah. cash. You don't know when you're going to really need it. But, you know, in my particular case why it was so dangerous for for me and my family was because five or so weeks prior to the convoy um yeah about five weeks prior to the convoy i spent 10 weeks over the christmas holiday i ate my christmas dinner out of a vending machine at sick kids hospital so you know my son was admitted to sick kids hospital He's had a, he was born with a congenital heart defect and he was very sick prior to that, uh, to the convoy, about five weeks before the convoy. And, uh, it was a very serious medical situation that had happened to him. And he was on some pretty heavy medications for his heart. And so when they froze my bank accounts, my credit card was on file with the pharmacy in order for me to purchase my son's medication. Mm -hmm. Well, his prescription was due. And so my son, who's an innocent minor, uh, had no idea that I was even at the convoy in Ottawa 
because uh, I don't unfortunately live with my son. But he didn't know I was at the convoy. He didn't support the convoy. He didn't participate in any way at the convoy. And yet to put pressure on me for my political views, which I find ridiculous political views, but because of my, my views on government overreach, the government decided to punish me by further government overreach, which then put my life, my son's life in danger because he couldn't get the medicine because my, all my financial assets were frozen. Luckily, his mother had cash on him, on her. So his mother had cash. She paid cash for, you know, the outstanding balance of the heart medication for my son. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's really disheartening to watch Christian Freeland up at the podium yeah, really. giggling like a yeah. little schoolgirl, uh, talking about how, you know, she's, she's frozen people's bank accounts. Yeah. As if um, it's no under big the authorities of the, the Yeah. It's no big deal. And listen, I, I've heard countless stories of people who had their accounts because 280 or so Canadians had their bank accounts frozen. And when they froze that, it's not just the 280 people that got frozen out of their assets. It's 280 families that mm -hmm. were frozen out of their own financial assets. So just the law of large numbers tells you that at least, you know, other people within that group had medically compromised people who depended on medication, mm -hmm. who had a very difficult time accessing their medication or getting refills. So, you know, set the medical issue aside for 10 days, you know, wouldn't have been able to purchase fuel, mm -hmm. wouldn't have been able to purchase food. Um, potentially bank accounts are bouncing uh, or bills are bouncing. Rent is not being made. Mortgage payments aren't being made. Car payments. You know, the things that we, we depend on, I mean, yeah. we bring in an income and we have to pay bills. That's mm. society. And that's exactly why the government chose to go after the most painful point, uh, for Canadians other than incarceration. Yet many were incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And uh, yeah. And I, th I think once we, uh, listen to the public order emergency commission, and uh, listen to uh, Christia Freeland as she talked about her discussions with the banks and how some members of the bank uh, banking community that were part of the government meetings on this was, look, uh, the only way you're going to be able to access the, uh, the money is basically to make them, uh, make the truckers appear to be terrorists, um, you know, under the um, uh, terrorist uh, legislation uh, that came in many ways, as a result of what happened in 9-11. But, but here we have, here we have as well, it's not only government, but also the big banks, which have a lot of power in this country because we have a, a near monopoly when it comes to banking, uh, unlike the United States where anybody with the means can go ahead and open up a bank. Here in Canada, we have you know, the, the big five and, and we've got, uh, yeah, we have some, um, co-ops and, and, and that kind of thing, credit unions. But the reality is the big banks are the ones that are, that are really controlling things. And it strikes me that if we had individuals who are in charge of these big banks, who were concerned about 
individual freedom in this country, they would have said to government, look, hold on here. You're going to freeze people's bank mm -hmm. accounts, the very lifeline of individual Canadians you're going to freeze. And there was no pushback. In fact, there was more collaboration. It's again, part of this different, uh, you know, this sense of deference that the banks were giving to government. Because in many ways, of course, there's almost like a hand in a glove in the sense that government policy affects banking policy and all the rest and profits and everything else. But at some point, at some point, we've we got to expect the corporate leadership in this country to also be concerned about basic charter rights that have been recognized. And surely there was somebody somewhere in the banking industry that was like, no, give your head a shake here, guys. This is unacceptable. But yet we don't see that. We don't hear that. We just see, okay, the government says it, so we're going to do it. And there's been a lot of countries in back in history where various industry leaders just say, okay, well, the government said that I should do it, so I did it. But that doesn't make it right just because government says so. I totally agree with you. And in fact, uh, I'm not going to say which bank, but I recently did come across the email that was written by one of the bank CEOs to Christian Freeland prior to them invoking the Emergencies Act, actually demanding that they invoke the Emergencies Act to put an end to the convoy and to put an end to any of the other blockades. So not only were the banks com uh, complicit, but they actually had one of the one of the CEOs that was demanding yeah. that the government do what they did. So that's a disturbing development there on its own. And I've recently seen the email, uh, but I'm not going to mention the name of the the CEO. Yeah. Now, here's a here's a, th a thing that does really concern me about this whole thing. So I, I want to make two points with this. Mm -hmm. uh, to go back to your earlier comment, though, about industry. So the insurance industry was given the same exact order. Right. But they refused. They refused. Mm -hmm. They came out and said, no, absolutely, we're not. You haven't, you know, got this through both the, the uh, House of Commons or the Senate. Um, and if you do this, what you're going to automatically do is put all of those people's mortgages into default wow. because you need to have insurance in order to have a mortgage. Right. And so they looked at the, the long-term or sorry, they looked at the, the ripple effect of this decision and they said, you know what you d no, we're not doing that. You're going to cause too many catastrophic problems for Canadian citizens. So the insurance industry actually did push back, but the banks, they just rolled over and they said, well, you know what? And I'll tell you why I think they did it because the banks under the FinTrack rules have been deputized into law enforcement on behalf of, you know, federal, the federal government, because FinTrack is supposed to be a mechanism, like you said, uh, post nine 11 to monitor, uh, terrorist financing, both domestically and international and also, um, you know, organized crime type of, of stuff. Right. So now you've got, so every time somebody goes to the bank and they withdraw a large sum of money and the teller says, what are you using your money for? Yeah. That's because of FinTrack mm -hmm. and in, in which, you know, my response to that question is, can I see your badge, please? Yeah. And they're like, <laughs> my badge. 
Yeah. Uh, well, you're you're a deputy of the law enforcement, so you therefore you must have a badge. So I'd like mm-hmm. to see your badge number. And they're yeah. kind of like, eh? you know, it's, so, you know, this is it's, this is the reality yeah. that Canadians are under. Yeah, it, it, it's unconscionable, really, when when you think about just the very basic right mm-hmm. of owning property, right? Um, you know, here it is. You have yes. Uh, during this uh, convoy, we are able to see point blank in the face of everyone. We're able to see what can happen in this country when it comes to personal property, Um, whether it's your house, Mm -hmm. like you said, or whether it's your bank account, or even if it's your means of earning a living like a truck and they can just go ahead and take your truck. Um, But even, even worse, they'll even take away the license uh, of you. Uh, if you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, are violating uh, what they perceive to be uh, something that's unacceptable. I mean, for have we seen this kind of abuse of Canadian governmental power and in essence bullying uh, the various uh, entities to get their way because they disagree with the political opinions of those who are protesting? And the prime minister made it very clear, of course, that he didn't agree with them, uh, whereas with other groups, he did. Now, just think about that for a minute. All all of you who are looking at this and you're saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, the truckers uh, were domestic terrorists, whereas everyone who was out, all of the other truckers who were out on the roads, you know, delivering goods and so forth, they were just doing trucking. But these were actually domestic terrorists. I mean. They were not domestic terrorists. They were individuals who had a beef with government, who were using their God-given right to say what they said and said, look, government, you've gone too far. So I, I find it so uh, incomprehensible that we would have a, uh, an environment where government thought they could pull a fast one. And, and the fast one, I think, is highlighted in Mosley's decision in this. And, th- and that is, he said, look, if we were to uh, simply say that every time someone comes to us, the courts, and the government argues, well, it's moot now because we are no longer uh, doing the overreach. We're no longer seizing the bank accounts. We're no longer doing all these things. And Mosley makes an interesting point. He says, look, the government is withholding information and any person whose rights have been violated has a rough time trying to get a hold of that information. Plus then government would be able to get away with, uh, have, uh, getting away with violating those rights, stepping back just when um, an individual would try to get into court and say, okay, well, it's all moot now. And Somehow there's a lot of people in this country think that's okay, but it's not okay uh, because we do not know the moment that other people's rights are going to be violated in the same form, in the same manner. And this is why your lawsuit is important. It's why it's so important that this other suit and the Mosley case, uh, Mosley's decision in that case, um, is so important for everybody's rights. And and I think that mootness argument, uh, especially in the Peckford case, is so catastrophically wrong uh, for so many different reasons. Right? It sets it sets a very very ugly precedent within you know the legal system now, 
because, you know, I, I always looked at it like this. It's like, okay, well, I struck somebody oh, in yeah. the face and I was charged with assault. I go to court and then my argument now is, well, I'm not hitting that person in the face now. So therefore your argument's moot. It's like, no, <laughs> I, I still victimize somebody, right? I still yeah, victimize exactly. somebody. And this right. is, this is what the yep. government was doing. They victimized 6 million Canadians. And so for a, a, a judge, a liberal judge to sit there and say that what they did is basically irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Uh, they, they, they were awesome when they did it to 6 million Canadians. I think it's fundamentally disgusting. And I think even more deeper than that is it fails to uphold the very sort of principle of having separation of powers. Right. And, and yeah. that to me is a, is, you know, as a non-lawyer was supposed to be a, a fundal fundamental, um, aspect of what it means to be a civilized society is that you have the executive, you have the legislative, legislative branch, and you have the judiciary and each are separated so that you can have checks and balances within your society to make sure that there's not too much power concentrated in the hands of very few. And yet here we are giving a mootness ruling on the actions of the government who committed a, a violation of people's charter rights. I, and, and I want to say this one last thing, sorry. Yep. Specifically, Section 6 was the argument that Brian Peckford and um, uh, the other plaintiffs Yep. Cited. Yep. And Maxine Bernier, uh, Sean Rickard, and Carl Harrison that specifically chose Section 6. Mm -hmm. And if you ever hear uh, Peckford talk about Section 6, what he said, when they were drafting the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, they even considered a pandemic as a reason, not a good enough reason, to suspend your mobility rights to and from Canada in between the provinces and cities. Hmm. So they even considered a pandemic and they said that that's not even a good enough reason. And so that's what they sued on. And then the government turned around hmm. and said, or the, the judiciary said, ah, oh, it's moot. It's a moot point. It's like, no, it's not. Yeah. You stopped people from traveling in this country. You broke the law and it's even specified. And I think in section 33, it specifically singles out section six of the charter and says, uh, you know, under the notwithstanding, it says, Hey, forget about section six here. This doesn't count. There's no mechanism within the charter that says you can, you can suspend or uh, violate section six of the charter. Like it's. And yeah. And, and, and of course that has a long history because I mean, Throughout the mm -hmm. ages, there was, uh, well, and, and even most recently in the middle of the 20th century, when you had governments such as uh, Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union under Stalin and Lenin and so on, where people were confined to their living areas and not allowed to go out in other areas around the country because they wanted to control movement. And so it was extremely important mm -hmm. to have that exemption there that it says it the notwithstanding clause, section 33, does not apply to section six. I, I, you know, it's, it's like um, we have failed to understand our own history and the importance of these provisions. When the courts fail to recognize rights, there's a principle 
that we've, we hear about almost ad nauseum when we're in law school. And that is that justice is not only to be done, but it's to be seen to be done. And when, when the courts fail in, in the minds of the people, that they are not keeping check on the power, then that brings the administration of justice into disrepute. Again, another phrase that we, we hear in relation to this. And that's why it's so very important for the judiciary to recognize this and to come to the aid of the people in such dire straits. Barry, since the first time we've ever met on your show, we've always had this consistent theme that every institution within our so-called civilized society has failed. Mm -hmm. Every institution. And I'm talking from banking to policing, to education, to religion, to, you know, the, the, academia, the courts, you name it. every institution, academia, yep. it's all failed the public. Yep. And so you know, that's something that people have to recognize now. Now, the, the benefit to that, the benefit to that, or the silver lining, is the fact that I don't think there's ever been a time in Canadian history where citizens were more engaged in the political process and learning more about their rights and learning more about what it is that politicians are actually doing. So I think that that in itself is the one sort of silver lining because now, now the public is fully engaged. Like they literally, the government of Canada, the, to the premiers, the, the municipalities, they've poked a bear and now yep. they've woken up this bear within Canadian society and they want to know what the hell's going on. And so they're not happy about it. And the one question that never, ever, ever gets talked about by the media or the courts or any of that stuff or any, let's say, um, uh, what's a, uh, editorials about the convoy. Nobody ever talks about the reason why we went in the first place. Mm -hmm. They never talk about that issue. It's like, you think that 6 million Canadians just woke up and had like, some hypnotic uh, psychosis event or something like that, where they said, oh, yeah. I, I'm just, I'm a normal guy. I'm just going to go to Ottawa. Like 6 million yeah. people were prevented from, from traveling in this country. That's 15% of the population. Mm -hmm. And, you know, millions of Canadians supported the convoy. Uh, hundreds of thousands stood on all the overpasses from coast to coast, all the right. way to Ottawa. In a two separate occasions, Canadians raised over $10 million in, in days. days. Like I'm not talking yep. a week in yep. days yep. to support this thing. And, and so why, why does nobody want to talk about the reasons why we had so much overwhelming support in Ottawa? Hmm. They never get to that. They never ask the tough questions because the average Canadian who consumes the legacy media, they, you know, they, they consume what's coming out of the TV, but it kind of stops right there. They're regurgitating the anchor man's talking points for them. Right. I, right. I have this rule on Twitter. I won't engage with you. If you're negative towards me, I won't engage with you. If your face isn't, that's not your profile picture. And that's not your name. Mm -hmm. If you're not going to put your name and reputation on the line, like I am, then I'm not going to engage you in your little fantasy arguments or your name calling or your, you know, disparaging remarks about the convoy. Because what I know is that person 
is worried about the consequences and they're hiding behind their anonymity. Right. And so right. they're not getting my attention. They're not getting yep. my time. So I don't engage with them. That's a rule that I have. That's a very um, good rule. But yeah, and I and I think so too, because a lot of people wanna want me to get into an argument with them. It's like I'm not. Now, one guy uh yesterday, yesterday actually, it was his picture and his name. He said some remarks, and I said, tell you what, go back and find evidence to the statement that you just made. And I'll wait, but chances are the anchor man's not going to give you a new talking point on, on how to come back to me because they won't report the truth. They won't examine why it was, and nobody ever talks about even the commission, the public order emergency commission was a farce for the simple reason is that there was never any discussion about why the convoy even went to Ottawa. I don't even think I got asked that question. I was asked why I participated. Yeah. Uh, but they never asked, why do you think, you know, it was so important to go to Ottawa in, in pushback against the government and again, exercise our charter rights to peacefully assemble under sections, uh, two. Yeah. So it's, to me, it's one of the most important questions in any argument or debate about the convoy itself. And I think for people who are looking for, uh, you know, they want to get into an engaging conversation with people who are opposed to the convoy, start with, why do you believe the convoy went to the, to Ottawa to begin with? And then just see how mm. the conversation evolves from there. No, and that's very good because, you know, the whole uh, ability of being able to travel is so key. What I, I want to come back to uh, another point, talking about the importance of, of having check on power. One of the problems we have in Canada, as I see it, and I know there's a lot of scholars who have written on the office of prime minister and they say, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of check and balances. There's the balance on as a result of parties who want the leader to make sure that they're uh, not getting too big for their britches and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's, um, but in my view, we have a fundamental flaw that is something that other uh, Westminster type parliaments uh, based on the British system does not have near to the same degree as we have in Canada. And that is that in, as you pointed out, the legislature is one institution, the executive is the other historically, and then you have the judiciary. And all three are supposed to be uh, checking on one another. But in Canada, we've got a merger. We have a merger of the executive and the legislature because the office of prime minister gets to decide what legislation is going to be uh, given. And not only that, but it, when we have a majority or we have a coalition, as we do now, because it's really, it's not a liberal government. It's a liberal NDP government that is supported by the NDP and they're able to do what they, what they please. So where we have a problem here in this country is when the prime minister then has very little check and balance. Why? Well, think about it. Prime Minister appoints all the judges, Superior Court judges across the entire country. 
The prime minister appoints all of the diplomatic staff. The prime minister appoints all of the various crown agencies. The prime minister decides on uh, not only the government policy, but what legislation will indeed be passed. There is a fundamental concern, as far as I'm concerned, a, a fundamental uh, it has developed into a a governing error of sorts in that we have a one person having so much power. That power, we've gone from having the king to having the prime minister that has become the de facto king. The, the king of, of Canada is just simply a figurehead. But the de facto king resides historically in 24 Sussex, now up in the cottage there at the governor uh, uh, the governor general's grounds. But here's the thing we get a, I think we need to get back to thinking about how we can give more check and balance on the power of the prime minister. One of the things I point out in, uh, the book I recently published is that the prime minister, because he or she is almost like royalty now a sovereign they developed a certain attitude where I think that what happens is because so many people are dependent on the prime minister's goodwill in order to keep their careers going, that whatever wish the prime minister speaks, everyone underneath him, everyone around him will do whatever they can to ensure that the prime minister's wish is carried out. And so the way I look at the Emergencies Act and its invocation is that the prime minister made it very clear, including in his testimony, that from the very beginning of the pandemic itself, he was wanting to see the use of the invocation of the Emergencies Act, but even more so then when the truckers were in Ottawa. Everyone knew that. Everybody knew the prime minister, what he wanted. And they decided to, to uh, develop a theory for the case of invoking the act to support the prime minister's wish. That to me is a serious problem because uh, of the nature of it. It's like we've got our own modern day Caesar uh, that seeks to impose his or her will. And this, I think, is going to be a serious problem for Canada going forward if we don't get a handle on how we can uh, look at some mechanisms to deal with that kind of power. You know, there's my mind was racing as I was listening to you because there's several different vectors we could take uh, with what you had just said. And so I'm going to try to remember them all and, and kind of, you know, talk about them sequentially. And I would absolutely agree with you with the fact that, yes, there's too much of a concentration of power in the PMO. But I, and I look at, this system that we have in the parliamentary system with uh, whipping votes. I think uh, this leads to your point um, that whipping votes couldn't be a more detrimental practice that we have within our government uh, to actually representing the wishes of the constituents. So what's interesting, if you compare this to the Americans, 
they they will whip votes for sure. They have a party whip uh, within you know their political parties to whip votes. But the difference there is that if you're a Congress person for you know the United States, you vote for your constituents, you vote for your conscience, you then vote for your party in without fear of retribution from the party. We don't have that in the Canadian system. If you don't vote the way your party leader tells you, and that goes provincially as well as federally, if you don't vote the way your leader tells you, you risk being kicked out of your own party. Okay, so Mm -hmm. the voters lose their voice in parliament or in the legislature. If their member of parliament or MPP or MLA did not vote for the way that the leader of the party wanted, Okay, so that basically says that the leader of the party is really the only one who gets the vote. Mm-hmm. It's only their vote that matters. Right. They just, for, you know, to humor themselves and give the appearance of choice, they uh, basically tell all their, their members, okay, you're going to vote the way I'm telling you to vote. If you're not, you're out of the party. You're gone, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I look at that and I think, all right, MLAs, MPPs, MPs, they're not actual representatives. What they are is long distance administrative assistance to the leader of the party. That's what they are. They're administrative assistants. They're basically out there, you know, buying and selling the, the leader's policies in their communities. They're not listening to the people and taking those concerns back to the leader there. It's top down and pushed out to the constituents. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the the things that should be abolished in, in Canadian politics is the practice of whipping votes. I think there should be legislative protections against elected officials who want to vote against the leader or against their party. And if it's harmful to their community and and retribution. Yeah. Yeah. In Ontario, Doug Ford, I think he removed his first term as uh, premier. He removed seven of his MPPs in Ontario and not one of them were ever re-election, re-elected. So not only does the, the party, uh, you know, Rick Nichols is a great example. Rick Nichols right. served his community, I think for, for, you know, well over a decade, uh, had been re-elected consecutively and Doug Ford removed him from the party because uh, Rick refused to share his vaccination status, which is, you know, protected under the privacy act. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got lawmakers violating the law with impunity. And so they removed him and he ran in the Ontario party. He knew his community and how did his community repay him? Yeah. They elected a conservative, they yeah. elected somebody else. Right. Yeah. So I, I, you know, we have a problem with the electorate itself and we have a problem with the political system. Now, the, I, I hate to go back to the American system, but I think it's really an important thing because I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of months studying the American Declaration of Independence. And, you know, by no means is the American system better than the Canadian system right now, because I think if you look at what's happening in the United States and Canada, you'll see that both systems are catastrophic, catastrophically failing for the voters and for mm-hmm. the citizens. But I think the model, the model of this Republic is a, is a phenomenal idea. I just think that it's 
you know, taken several hundred years to completely corrupt. But if you look at the actual Declaration of Independence, it's a vitally important document in the minds of, of Americans, rightly so. But if you actually take the time to read it, they, the first sections of the, the uh, Declaration of Independence in the United States are a list of grievances against the King of England. Mm-hmm. They outline all the justifications, all the actions that they've taken to be heard. You know, their, their grievances as well as the, the solutions, the attempts to submit their, their redress of grievance to the king who refused to listen. And so, right. you know, they, they believed that they had self-evident truths. And so they took action and right. they said, based right. on these grievances and the actions of the king and how we tried to remedy this, they're not listening. Therefore, we are now declaring our independence from the king. Now, I'm not suggesting that Canada do that. And I did write a document uh, and I put it on on uh, social media. It got a lot of positive reviews. Again, I'm not a legal scholar. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I don't have a law degree, but I think it was a good template, a good model to look at. And I asked the Canadian public for suggestions on what to put in as remedies. So I, my document on, you know, it's posted on my Twitter, it's called the declaration of non-confidence. And so I list all of the failures of the federal government and I list Canadians solutions to stop those things from happening in the future, or at least for the time being, you know, things like get rid of party whips, um, recall legislation, you know, many different things that me and a bunch of Canadians put into that document. It's a starting point. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be ever heard in the house of commons? No, of course it won't. Not unless I get elected Yeah, <laughs> to something. Unless you're Student prime minister. In my high school. Yeah. When you're prime minister, then, mm-hmm. uh, you'll have all the power to be, able I to shall just it. decree. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I will decree whatever I want. Yeah. But you yes, know, you surfs. Yeah. And, you just surfs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, and then there's this other element too that power corrupts. I mean, it's throughout the ages, power corrupts. And as Lord Acton said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think we've got mm-hmm. to get to that realization um, as Solzhenitsyn recognize you know the line between good and evil goes through every human heart and and it's that realization i think within the american the early founders they fully fully understood that and yet it seems Mm -hmm. absolutely unbelievable that at a time when we have gone through you know the first second world war and now you know, we see all the nations puffing their chests up again for another go. Uh, it's like, uh, what part of that don't we understand about power? And it's it's like, it, it's uh, like uh, we we have been so ways we have been uh, sold a bill of goods that man is basically good. Well, no, man is not good. And this is, you know, Thomas Jefferson understood it. Uh, George Washington understood. George Washington, who won the war with the help of the French and, uh, and so forth, but nevertheless won the war, could easily have grabbed a hold of the power and became a king himself, but said no. <laughs> Why? Because he understood that principle that power corrupts. And 
And I think we need to be understanding, get back to these uh, basic philosophical understandings of the West that gave us the freedom that we that we have, that we're blessed with, but we're going, we're losing it. We're losing it when an individual who has absolutely no experience, no knowledge, no anything, but gets elected because of his last name and so forth and his dramatic skills. And, and then he gets absolute power. Like, I mean, or in essence, absolute power for nine days, but nevertheless, has extreme amount of power in the Canadian system. Of course it's going to corrupt. And it is corrupting, as we saw, you know, with the Arrive Can app and with with everything else that has been going on, scandal after scandal after scandal. Yeah, I you know what I often think about Justin Trudeau, I think about when you see these child actors, you know, that are on TV, they're on a set. And you follow them years into the future when they're adults and their lives are a wreck. Absolutely. You know, oftentimes they're drug addicted, alcohol, you know, they're very promiscuous. They have this detachment from the the reality that the rest of us live with because they grew up being told that they were unbelievably great because they're a celebrity. Yeah. Justin Trudeau's no different. He he's, you know, he's been in the public eye since he was a young young child and he was brought up on politics. Yeah. You know, I I knew the Liberals were in trouble when they had the leader leadership race and Mark Garneau mm. quit the race and then endorsed Justin Trudeau. I I knew that's when that that party was in real trouble because, you know, unlike Justin Trudeau the the Trudeau name, yes, it's on schools probably in, in every province in Canada, but that was put there by somebody else, by his father. Whereas Mark Garneau has schools named after him because Mark Garneau went to Royal Military College in Kingston. He has a PhD. He was a commander in the Navy and he was the first Canadian citizen to go into outer space. Mm-hmm. First Canadian astronaut. And so he's he was a member of parliament, right? So somehow we could have had an astronaut, but instead we had a part-time drama teacher who left school, quit his job suddenly in the middle of the semester for some unknown reason. Yeah. Right. He didn't do engineering. He didn't do anything of it. He did drama. Mm -hmm. Okay. We have a prime minister who is not qualified to take my dog for a walk and we could have had an astronaut Mm -hmm. and this is the problem. This is where I knew that this party was going to be in, in, in grave danger because it's not about the substance. It's about what they could sell as yep. a party. Yep. And, and you and know, that to me is. Yeah, go, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, I was going to, I was going to say that to me doesn't sound like seriousness. That to me sounds like they're putting a front man in front of the real band. Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think there's, um, a, um, a a number of people who had tremendous amount of experience in the liberal party, uh, that Mm -hmm. were systematically purged under the leadership of, uh, prime minister Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, even prior to him being prime minister, 
there was this this element of like you know what we need to get rid of all of the old guard now granted i wouldn't have uh, uh necessarily agree with the politics of the old guard but what i do appreciate about the old guard is that they had experience they had uh, a fair amount of wisdom and understanding there was also a willingness i think with the older politicians I, even jean chretien who i ran against when i ran for the uh, Canadian Alliance Party when Stockwell Day was the uh, leader of the opposition uh, 24 years ago, which is hard to believe. But anyhow, um, but there it was. Even Cretchen did have some semblance of working with uh, the opposition, working, trying to bring con consensus on things, Paul Martin certainly, and even um you know it's interesting like as much as i am not a big not a fan at all really of uh pierre trudeau but pierre trudeau was interesting he was interesting because on the one hand he really liked <clears throat> excuse me on the one hand he really liked john diefenbaker and um and he uh, you know and diefenbaker was no uh a pro trudeau guy uh and had his um, his own foibles and all the rest, but nevertheless, Pierre Trudeau uh, publicly stated that that he liked, you know, John Diefenbaker. There was something about Diefenbaker he liked, and I think part of it was the recognition that Diefenbaker had a lot of experience. He was in Parliament from I think the forties, uh, right up until the seventies when he died, late 70s, 79, something like that. And um, but there was this element of respect for uh the elders you do not see mm -hmm. any respect for any kind of recognition of the past or there was any good in the past there's only evil in the past and even when uh they have been shown to be wrong with respect to their judgments against various entities in uh, canadian history uh they'll still put forward this idea as he said just recently, that Canadians are not interested in making Canada great again. Uh, now, granted, uh, you know, obviously what he's referring to is trying to say, well, that's a, an mega. American or, um, yeah, the mega movement in the United States. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, the, right, the reality is there's a lot of Canadians that look back in the past and they see an awful lot of good and that Canada was great. Mm -hmm. Canada was great in peacekeeping. Canada was great in helping people around the country. Sure, I mean, I'm sorry, around the world and around the country, but certainly around the world, we had the ability to be able to do, do things uh, and provide uh, so much material goods, but also a, a, just a great sense of uh, an understanding of what it means to be human and how to help people around in all of the various uh, sectors of um, uh, where there is pain in the world. And, and we've lost that. We've lost it in spades where, where there is now, we don't even have the ability to support our NATO allies. We, we don't even have the ability to, um, to be able to uh, make a difference in many countries around the world. Why? Well, because we've spent ourselves into oblivion. Yeah. I, I look at Canada's history. So I grew up in Niagara Falls, Ontario. That's where I was born, raised, went to high school there. So I'm on a border town with the United States. 
And, you know, growing up, we didn't have the internet or any of that kind of stuff. You know, I'm 50 years old, so I remember even eight track tapes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I grew up with listening every night at 7 p.m. and 11 p.m. to American Buffalo or Tonawanda news stations. You know, that's where we got all of our news was from the American side of the border. For some reason, my family didn't gravitate to towards CBC. But, you know, as a kid growing up on the border with America, you always kind of felt like, oh, man, the Americans got everything really cool. You know, they've got all the good stuff over there. So I grew up as a teenager wanting to, you know, secretly wishing I was I was a, an American. As I got older and I started to look at America, I used to think, wow, I'm, I, <laughs> I'm lucky. I was born on the proper side of the border. Like I would hate to be in the shoes of the Americans. And, you know, there were so many things that you could be proud of with Canada, the Avro arrow, uh, medicine, you know, the innovation, the breakthroughs that Canada has contributed to the world. The, the Canada arm that flew on the, the space shuttle and now flies on the international space station was right here in, um, this area in Brampton, I believe, uh, used to be called spar. It's called MDA now big robotics company that does satellite work. I mean, if you, the, the godfather of artificial intelligence and depending on how you look at this was a guy named Jeffrey Hinton, Mm. who was a professor at university of Toronto. Okay. You have so much contributions to research and innovation coming out of Canada to the rest of the world, that it was something to really be proud of. But these days under Trudeau, we are leading in all of the worst possible ways. We are garnering the worst type of negative attention with our international partners. Freezing of the bank accounts has humiliated Canada on the world stage. You know, say what you want about the convoy, good or bad. The one thing that the entire world thinks about during that convoy wasn't the convoy. It was the fact that Trudeau froze the bank accounts. That's the thing that that really, really disrupted Canada's reputation as a free and democratic society amongst all first world nations. And that was a big thing. I mean, even in the interview with Tucker Carlson uh, in Vladimir Putin last week, he brought up Mm -hmm. what Trudeau was doing. Right. You know, talking about bringing a Nazi into the House of Commons, for God's sakes. So, you know, we are a laughingstock, not as a people, because we're seen as leading the fight to some extent because of the convoy and gaining back our freedoms. But we're the laughingstock from the point of the view that Look at the government we're fighting against. These people will go to no lengths to to do whatever they want with impunity, which goes to your earlier point, Barry, about the fact that he acts like he's a king and the rest of us are serfs, including his own party. You know, and this is disturbing Mm -hmm. because, Mm -hmm. you know, the the things that Canadians said to to all of us during the convoy is for the first time in two years, because it's been two years since the convoy, but for the first time in two years, I'm proud to be a Canadian again. So what does that mean from, from the beginning of the pandemic to the convoy, people were already embarrassed to be Canadians and they weren't proud of being Canadians anymore. Used to hear the the talk about Canadians or even Americans would go to Europe on backpack and put a Canadian flag on. 
Nobody's doing that anymore. Nobody's doing that anymore. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we, we gained this pride in Canada during the convoy, but two no, years and I, since I remember, then, it's waning a yeah. bit because the guy's still in power. He's still in power. <laughs> Why is he still in power? It's your earlier point about Jug or my earlier thoughts. Sorry, I didn't make the point yet, but Jugmeet Singh. Mm -hmm. The reason Trudeau's in power is because the one leader of the NDP, and there's only 24 or 25 NDP members of parliament, right. and they have one leader. And they have a whip system. So that means the other 24 members of the NDP are just long distance administrative assistants who do what Jugmeet Singh tells them. If Jugmeet Singh was to turn around in today and call for a vote of non-confidence, it would happen tomorrow. Right. But he is the one keeping Justin Trudeau in power. It is solely on the, on the shoulders of Jugmeet Singh. He is the one keeping Justin Trudeau in the prime minister's office. It's all Jugmeet Singh. He has to be the one to break this unholy alliance with the, uh, the liberals, take away the majority government, the majority coalition that they've built. And Canada can finally democratically change a government if that's what the Canadian public wants. But Jugmeet Singh is stopping a tyrant from being vacated from the off from that office mm -hmm. and of course uh one of the things that very much uh, is scaring me uh in the last little while is the realization that the ndp and the liberals apparently are working on a new piece of legislation dealing with elections and one all can only imagine what that's going to be all about uh when we finally get it um, coming up in the next yeah. little while, which they want to have in place for the next election. And one can't help but be cynical and say, hey, uh, as Cicero would say, qui bueno, who does it benefit? Hmm. Well, look at Danielle Smith in Alberta. She's uh, announced that she's looking at uh, legislation to make uh, electronic voting systems outlawed. Mm. So I think that's a great, great step for the province of Alberta going to paper ballots. Absolutely. Because I'll give you an example. We, you know, here in the Ontario election that I ran in, uh, we all had scrutineers at the election offices for the provincial election, but it was all the Dominion voting machines. So our scrutineers stood around and were not able to verify vote, uh, any of the votes. So it was a waste of time having scrutineers. They couldn't do their job. And so by having paper ballots, the scrutineers can stand there and make sure that there's no cheating. Mm -hmm. But yet, you know, I, I, I'm interested to see what uh, Singh and Trudeau are going to come up with. Yeah. no, And I, they'll try to convince us it's for our own good. Oh, absolutely. Everything is for our own good. Everything was for our good. It was for our own good, not the fly and everything else. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. so. What what do we do? How do we do it? Um, it seems to me that what's very important for us as Canadians to understand is that we have an obligation uh, to hold government officials accountable. And where we see things that are uh, are improper, that we have got to be willing uh, to be brave and step out. And yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. 
It's been very uncomfortable for you, uh, uh, Tom, mm -hmm. when here it is now you're going to uh, go through this lawsuit holding the government accountable. You have paid dearly as a result of your own uh, personal stand, um, you know, because like many of us who have decided to speak out and to say, hey, you know what? This is unacceptable. This is not how we should be running our country. Um, you know, people tend to be very shy around you <laughs> because they're just waiting to see whether or not the wind blows in your favor. And if it blows in your favor, mm -hmm. look out why well, then they were always your best friends, you know. Uh, and but we need to have mm -hmm. brave individuals like yourself, like Tamara, like Chris and all the others to say, hey, no, this is unacceptable. And as Canadians, we need to encourage people to stand up instead of just sitting back and letting the government and all of the politicians get away with whatever they want uh, when it just simply makes no sense and it makes lives uh, miserable. Um, what other thoughts do you have? Well, I, you know, I struggle between... Um trying to determine if the Canada that I was raised in up until four years ago still mm -hmm. even exists. And if it, and if it does exist, is it worth fighting to preserve a system that is so visibly corrupt? Mm -hmm. Do we bring it back? Do we support it? Do we uphold it? What do we do? And I think I'm not sure what the answer to that question is. And I, and I, I think about this very often, which was one of the reasons why I wrote this document, this declaration of non-confidence is because I do outline things like at the bare minimum that I do believe would make a monumental impact on, you know, how Canadians currently view that the government of Canada in the court system in law enforcement in this country are now in disrepute. And they're in disrepute because of their own doing, yeah. because they have forsaken what we believed was the foundation that built this society, mm -hmm. okay, which was the rule of law and fairness and all these different attributes that we, we used to believe made Canada a great country to live in. And I, I wonder sometimes, is, is Canada as we knew it, was it all that good or was all the corruption just hidden? And I, and I believe that the corruption was, was hidden, well, but I, it was I always it there. Was, it was just hidden. Yeah. I think you're right on that point. I think that's right because it was hidden because it was so seen mm -hmm. as so unacceptable, socially unacceptable. Whereas today yes. we have a mindset in Ottawa, which says, so what? So what if we, <laughs> you know, um, go ahead and impose, you know, freezing of bank accounts. So what if we joke about having yeah. tanks roll through Ottawa to take out the truckers? So what if we mm -hmm. spend all of these millions of dollars on a RiveCam app that could have been made for $80,000 or less, but we've spent all of this. So what if I want mm -hmm. to uh, uh, support a criminal 
company or cr criminal activities of a construction company. And so what if I dismiss mm -hmm. all of these uh, individuals, uh, these ladies who are uh, standing up against me? So what? Like it's right out there mm -hmm. in your face now. You wouldn't see it that way uh, years ago. It would be embarrassing. I mean, a prime minister, the, the amount of the amount of scandals that have gone on under this current prime minister, uh, even just one of those scandals would have knocked down uh, a prime minister in the past just because of the embarrassment. There's no embarrassment today. We'll, we'll look at the great example of uh, Bev Oda, who was a member of parliament. She bought a $16 glass of orange, orange juice, juice on the taxpayer's dime. Yeah. And, and it cost her her job. You know, where, where's that standard now? I mean, you're right. I I've lost track of all the, the scandals that Trudeau has been yep. involved in and he's about to get hit with another one. So, you know, with, uh, I think a bridge construction project, um, oh. you know, now he's got the auditor general coming after him, Yeah. you know, yeah. who the auditor general has said she's spoken to the RCMP about the, the, the government. So, you know, I don't know how he has lasted this long other than because of Jugmeet Singh. Yeah. It's Jugmeet Singh's fault. And, and I don't often talk like that, but Jugmeet Singh has a lot to answer for to the Canadian public, but he, because he is single-handedly, and I mean that in the truest sense, single-handedly keeping Justin Trudeau in power. And what? He sold out Canada for dental care? I haven't even heard of one person yet who's accessed that dental care. But... <laughs> You know, at the end of the day, you know, is, is Canada what we thought? And I think the answer is no, it's not. The corruption right. was there. We didn't see it, but we yeah. see it now. We see it now. Yeah, and now is when in the hearts of Canadians, they know that something is wrong. And that is why Canadians are so engaged in politics and the political process and watching what the government's doing. That's why people are interested in now. And so I think now going back to the American forefather or founding fathers were, you know, this is the history repeating itself that, oh, that yes. you're talking about earlier. If we do know our history and we look at the example set by the American founding fathers, we have an opportunity to non-violently mm -hmm. recreate a Canada that cannot be so corrupt. What it takes is courage and it takes boldness. And I'm afraid I'm not seeing that come out of the conservative party. I'm just not seeing the boldness. Like I, I, I want to see, I want to see a, a brilliant man or woman who's got the, the guts, the courage to be somebody like Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan. You know, they had charisma, they, they had courage, they had grit, you know, they were tough. And yet there, it doesn't matter if they were popular or not. They had convictions and they stood by their convictions. Hmm. And, you know, we see these guys that are all just, you know, they have their pre-canned talking points, talking to the media. They're looking at opinion polls. They don't have opinions. They don't come down on, on strong issues. And so I'm not seeing that come out of the conservatives with the, you know, there's always exceptions to that. There's a few, yeah, well, I mean, my I, favorite I conservative just, MP. Yeah. Like there, there are yeah. some that, that I've seen recently there are some. that, that have, that have certainly yeah. showed them ways. I think of Larry Brock, for example, 
Larry uh, Block is got is who I was gonna say. Yes, yeah, I Larry mean, Brock. Yeah, he's a Bro- he's he, a lion. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, but you yeah. know, but but sometimes it takes those kinds of guys to come up and to say, hey, look, enough's enough, and then that encourages others, right? Because we're we we do tend to be that type where we 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 simply okay, well, I'm not sure yet if I'm going to take that that uh donut uh, those donuts you know everyone brings in the donuts no one no one will touch it until some Mm -hmm. one person does and and then all of a sudden everyone's into the donuts and i think it's that kind of thing uh, that's going on but you know just something else too that i've noticed and that is this and, and this just kind of furthers your point and that is i have never seen so many people engaged and 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 the trucker convoy has really has really as i say has ignited canada for mm-hmm. like every week i'm getting into i'm getting um, invitations to be part of this group or that group that's meeting uh, you know some are meeting monday night some are meeting wednesday night every friday you know there's a freedom rising group and so forth there's there's lots of groups that are that are just having discussions. So there's, I, I think what I would encourage our viewers to do is to be engaged in these groups and, um, um, you know, just find out what's, what the discussion points are and all the rest. And eventually, uh, as, we, as we keep discussing and as we keep engaging in the conversation, uh, things rise to the top. I mean, ideas, good, good ideas uh, rise to the top. Um, and you know, your, uh, what you did with that, um, uh, document you sent out, as you just mentioned, uh, gets people thinking. And I think we, mm-hmm. we, we have this kind of like a brief shining moment. How long we don't know. I mean, how much longer will it be that, um, you know, if, if Trudeau were, uh, continued in power for another 10 or 20 years or something crazy, um, how much longer would it be that, we would be even able to have conversations like this or be able to broadcast it or be able to, you know, engage in, in meaningful conversations. I mean, it's only recently we had the door open just a wee little bit with um, uh, Elon Musk opening up Twitter again. Twitter is now a place where you can Mm -hmm. engage in conversation, which we weren't able to do before. Um, so we we got to take advantage of that while we have it because it's probably in the grand scheme of time it's probably only seconds uh that we might have left before some mm-hmm. other um you know authoritarian decides to tell us what we can think yeah you know there's something that you said that makes me think about there's always this uh desire to go back to ottawa you know have convoy 2.0 or 2.5 or 3.0 and you have to remember you know what was going on in this country at the time of the the convoy the the first convoy Mm -hmm. it was a pressure cooker and the pressure was applied to the public by the government of canada you know the vax pass the masks all these other mandates quebec had a curfew grocery stores in certain areas were putting police out front to stop you from getting food if you weren't showing your vax pass like the pressure that the public was under was enormous Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. there's no appetite to to be supported by the public right now because the the government 
has taken all pressure off. They haven't applied the pressure uh, in the way that they were doing it before. Right. So there's not going to be support for a new convoy to go. Now, the moment that the government does something so egregious that it upsets the Canadian public to the point where they're like, you know what? Pressure or no pressure, that is anti-Canadian, what you've just done. Mm -hmm. That has gone too far. And so guess what? We're going back somewhere. I'm not saying people should go back to Ottawa, Mm -hmm. but action has to be taken. And my hope always, always is because I, you know, I spent 25 years in the army. I know what violence looks like. Right. Okay. I know what that stuff's about. My hope is that this country always gets the independence and the freedom that it, that it used to enjoy, but through only peaceful means. Yes. Okay. It's not going to be easy, but I want it to be peaceful. I don't want to see police officers or, or military or civilians getting hurt. Yes. I don't want to see anyone in this country getting hurt. Um, but you know, there, there's going to possibly come a time where the Trudeau liberals in the NDP do something so egregious to the public that the public is going to not feel like they're not boxed in. That they, they're, they're backed into a corner and they have to go forward. That's how I felt during the convoy. That's why I went. I felt like my back was against the wall and I had no choice but to go forward. Right. And so I did. And so I think the convoy was an inspiration to people to say, hey, it was successfully done once. Uh, We can do this again. We can get the change that we need in this country desperately. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I'm concerned about the lack of boldness in the federal conservatives too, to be perfectly honest. And let me say, let me qualify that. Yep. If, if there's an election and Pierre Polyev, and I, and I believe Pierre Polyev will be the next prime minister, but it sure seems like if at the this conservatives point. take over at yep. this point, yeah. If, if they take over government and they just maintain a status quo. Yeah. Talk about disenfranchising voters. Right. Talk about being duped. And if you dupe the, the voters, um, they are going to completely disengage from many, many aspects of Canadian society. They're Mm -hmm. either going to become restless and active. And I don't know that that's a good sign, or they're going to say the Canada that I know is dead. I am now going to join a parallel society. And I don't recognize your authority over me as the government of Canada. I don't respect your, recognize your police, your courts, your judges, nothing. If you want me, there's a hundred of us living over here and we're ready to fight. Leave us alone. Get out of our lives. You know, that's, I think this is, this is the warning I would give to the conservative government when they take over. If, if they're not bold, if they're not decisive, and if they're not interested in correcting all the wrongs of the, the liberal government, like on day one, they better be rolling out a legislative agenda that repeals a lot of the stupidity that was done by the liberals. Mm. If they don't do that, you will further disenfranchise the even conservative voters. They will give up. They will give up. And a lot of people don't even think that there's a political solution to this. A lot of people have already checked out of Canadian society. Okay. That's what I'm concerned about. Let's unpack that a little bit. (laughs) Uh, But you're you're saying like a a parallel society. You mean like, uh, like some group, uh, 
almost like declaring their own independence from the Canadian state or something or like. Yeah. Cause you're, I'm seeing, and I'm, I'm pr like, I'm aware of several off grid communities across Canada that have already started, you know, peach, wow. people have purchased big swaths of land. They've okay. subdivided it. They've uh, created a, a system that works and they're independent. And, you know, there's a saying, and I believe in this, that local action has national consequence. Right. So we know that the subversion of our society as we, we used to know it, it all happened over decades. Right. It happened over decades. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't because of COVID. COVID was just no. the thing that pulled back the curtain. Absolutely. Right? So the I subversion. Totally agree with you on that. The subversion. Yeah. And it all happened at the societal local level. Mm. So a lot of people are saying, well, why am I going to fight for that? If you basically, you know, you captured my queen overnight. Well, it wasn't overnight. It, it appeared that way. But in reality, those chess pieces were moved around for decades. And so people woke up to this, oh my God, everything's gone. Okay. So there's a lot of, there's a large group of people that think, okay, we should go for another convoy or another big, big thing. And I'm saying, you think that you're going to have one big move like a convoy and return everything back to the way it was. Yeah. No, you're talking about yeah. one move and compared yeah. to, you know, thousands and thousands of small moves that have happened slowly over decades. Right. It's right. not, it, it's not equitable. So yeah. Yeah. some people are thinking that same way and they're saying, then I'm out, I'm out. I'm going to start this parallel society over here. And these societies already exist within Canada. Well, they're not saying, Hey, we're sovereign land. They're just saying, we don't need your society. We're going to take care of ourselves just fine. Right. And so, well, you know, it's, it's interesting because as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about the uh, various religious communities over the years, uh, particularly in the Anabaptist tradition, the Amish, uh, the Old Order Mennonites, yes. where basically, in yes. essence, they've, they, they are an example of creating a parallel society. They're in the world, but not of the world. Absolutely. Or, yeah. So, so in mm -hmm. that sense, I, I can see where you're, what you're, what you're talking about. And then there's also a, a movement afoot that I've been uh, paying attention to, and that is, uh, why are we doing business with businesses that hate you? Is the the phrase you often hear? Yeah. Um, you know, why would mm -hmm. you hire, why would you hire this professional who has come out and said something that is very derogatory toward towards you? Why would you give them business? Why would you give you know all of the various entities, the various corporations, the and so forth? Why would you give them business when they're totally uh, against everything you stand for? And so I can see that. I, I, I guess I never uh, put it together, I guess, in my own little world. I haven't seen a whole lot of that, uh, but I'm just, um, you know, uh, one of the things that's, that's happening for me right now is that, you know, as a result of writing the book, 210 Degrees Celsius, which is based on this idea of creating this pressure and and uh, and this heat that ultimately, you know, a diesel takes 210 degrees before it self ignites, and in many ways, that's what happened in Canada, mm -hmm. where the people just automatically ignited. It was just kind of like spontaneous 
combustion there. Mm -hmm. uh, but but as time goes on, I'm get, get, getting invited out more and more to different groups and and uh, communicating with people that I wouldn't have ordinarily have met because of that, but because mm -hmm. of that. And so therefore, um, yeah, there there is some interesting discussions going on. Um, and I can see how that could happen. I, and I mean, Canada is a big country and uh, we we see these all, groups that have been here for, you know, hundreds of years, these religious communities uh, that in essence have created these parallel societies already. So the, in one way, it's nothing new, uh, but in another way, mm -hmm. it is new because this is something that, you know, we can we can uh, we, we haven't had i guess a major grouping or a major parallel kinds of systems like that and and people are so frustrated with the way society is today that this now becomes a real possibility you know the truth of the matter is when i got fired from my teaching job at georgian you know i had a big mortgage like everybody else mm -hmm. um but we chose under great pressure to sell that house. Mm. We, we were lucky at the time it was at the top of the market. Right. But one of the things that we did was at the time we purchased a large parcel of land. Right. And so I was thinking this, this is what I was thinking. This is, you know, again, like I said, at the time, look at the pressure we were all under at the time. Right. So my thought was, okay, I already know doctors on our side. I know nurses on our side, um, a dentist on our side, other healthcare professionals. I knew carpenters, electricians. I knew lots of people who had skills that were on our side. And my thought was, I need to buy a big parcel of land because if we now get excluded from society, mm. I need to create my own society on my land with all of these people that have the skills to rebuild. Wow. Yep. And so this is what the, where my mind was at when I sold my house mm -hmm. and I, I wouldn't have been able to keep my house without a job. Right. Right. And so I looked at it and said, okay, this is the opportunity to maybe get mortgage free, um, and get off the grid, you know, and that's really, you know, where my mind was at, uh, mm -hmm. just prior to the convoy. Right. Because I, you know, I got fired, not because I wasn't a good teacher. In fact, I think I was a pretty good teacher and all my student ratings confirm that. Right. But <laughs> I got fired because of my insistence that the government and my employer respect my rights as a human being. Mm. Right. And so for that, for yeah. that, I'm vilified, <laughs> right. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so when society is failing you on a moral level, you, you start to question, do I want to belong to this society at all? Or do I just want to start over? And one of my favorite movies is, is, uh, M night Shyamalan, uh, called the village where they basically did just that. Wow. Um, but you know, like you said, the, the, you know, religious organizations or communities have already done this. Mm -hmm. It's not anything new. And, and, and it, um, and, and it came from a time where there was such a huge upheaval in the structure of that age, uh, particularly the, you know, the Reformation period in the 1500s, you know, the 16th century, where, where basically uh, you had, everything was, was falling. Um, the, 
the old structures were falling down. Uh, people were, it was an us and a them. You either accepted our view, our ideological position, or else you were a cast out or you ended up being burned at the stake and all the rest of it. So we can see where that kind of thinking leads. And that, that was one of the reasons why I decided to, to start up, uh, you know, First Freedoms uh, Project as well is because I was like, my word, when you're, when you're pitting one group against another, like that is, that is taking us back. You know, the, there's the claim of, well, you know, it's 2015 after all, you know, or, you know, because it's 2015 mm -hmm. that we uh, are do these great, wonderful things like having a, a, a diverse cabinet or whatever it was, he said. But, you know, the thing is, is that it's so regressive. Like, like I mean, this is taking us back to the dark ages mindset. And, and so that created this idea of experimenting, of living, of, of how, do, how do we work together as a community with a very hostile world that's against us. So it's kind of like a circling of the wagon. Yeah, that's certainly what I was doing, basically circling the wagons with skilled people. Yeah. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I have these days where I think maybe I still go down that route. And, you know, just like the communities that you mentioned, you know, the, um, the Amish and, um, stuff like that, they, they are still integrating into society in one form or another. So it's not a, a complete, no uh, because you separation yeah. between, yeah. Cause you know, they do business with us, people buy their products, you know, right. there, there's a relationship still there. And I think that that, that very well could happen, um, but again, going back to how this, this started, it, it's going to depend on the boldness, the courage that the next government of Canada brings to the people. Mm. It, a lot of it is going to depend on them. If they maintain Justin Trudeau's status quo, forget it. Yeah. It's, it's over. You, you've disenfranchised too many Canadians. Yeah. Um, and you've proven to the electorate that the government does not care about the wishes and the will of the very people that put them into those seats. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, uh, one of the things we need to think about and recognize, uh, as I'm thinking, you know, ab about this concept is that what we have seen since the Trudeau government more than any other government that I can even think of in the history of Canada that has sought to impose an ideological understanding of the world in every aspect of the government's activity. And that if you mm -hmm. do not accept their ideological position on a host of things, whether it's um, issues of sexuality, issues of, you name it, abortion, all of those things, if, if you don't accept it, uh, then you become disenfranchised. You don't get the Canada Summer Jobs Grant, for example, uh, for your hiring students in the summer. You don't get X, you don't get Y, mm -hmm. because somehow you have the wrong opinion. And yet all of the money that's being handed out to various groups around the world, uh, around the country, that um, have to accept it based on the ideological harmony 
with the government, that money comes from my taxes and your taxes. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't have access because we've got a wrong opinion. Well, you're talking about a purity test. If you're not passing the purity test, then you're going to be uh, immediately slandered, defamed. Um, and, and this is the one thing, one characteristic I find that's interesting about, you know, the, the left wing of the political ideology is the fact that they never counter with facts and figures no. with objective criteria. They always counter with emotion. Mm. Whereas on the right, we say we object to these things for the following reasons. And, and there's exceptions, obviously, but we right. object to your behavior for the following objective reasons. Mm-hmm. You can spell it out. Well, the counter to that from the liberal ideology is you're a misogynist, you're a racist, you're a bigot, mm-hmm. you're a criminal, you're a terrorist. Okay, well, what's your what's your argument? I know that's how you're you're emotionally playing this, but what's your actual counter argument? Because I haven't heard one yet. Okay, um, go back and ask the anchor man to come up with something better for you and tell you what to say. But this is my view, you know, about a naturally occurring society, and I'm no anthropologist either, but a naturally occurring society changes its morals and ethics and values over time. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we look at 2000 years ago, you know, the, the origins of Christianity, you know, we had some pretty disturbing rules within society about, you know, the treatment of women, the treatment of infidelity, working on Sundays, you know, we had some, some pretty, barbaric behavior in practices in the, in the past, they were all legal though. They were all legal and they were all the value system of the people at that time. They believed it to be the correct and the right value system, which allowed them them to conduct their themselves that way. Mm -hmm. We go 2000 years into present time and we have to look at the value system that we as Canadians have, and that value system informs our morals. It informs our ethical behavior. Hmm. This happens over time. This happens gradually. And it is society that produces its own pressure to create this change over a long period of time within society. What you're talking about, and I agree with you, is ideology that is top down and it is pushed onto the public by a very, very small group of people who are trying to change the very moral ethics and value systems of the people themselves from a top down approach, as opposed to being a representative who grabs onto the, the pulse, the tempo of that gradual change in society. And then Mm -hmm. acts according to the wishes in the guidance, in the wisdom of society. But we're not seeing this. We're seeing the reverse. We're seeing direct pressure being put on the many by an infinitesimal few to guide what is supposed to be the moral, ethical value base of Canada. It's fundamentally Mm -hmm. upside down. And this is why so many people are, are uncomfortable. 
So this is a dangerous situation that we're in. And I, and I think the longer this goes on, people are either going to quit, quit society, like we talked about earlier, or it's going to push them. That pressure is, is, you know, to 210 degrees is going to push them into a, you know, a big explosion. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, I hope I, I'm very hopeful that the conservatives understand the real situation that they're in. And and remember, they're asking to become the government. They're asking for this. They're asking to take leadership of this. And they're going to have all the power that comes with it. They will. They certainly will. Because if an election were called today, they'd have an overwhelming majority government. And what scares me is who in the hell is going to be the opposition party? Mm. That's what scares me. I'm not entirely sure I believe in, in majority governments. Mm. I'm not sure they're a good thing overall. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because it, there's well, a lot of pros and cons. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, I share your concern because, because you go from one extreme to another. Uh, that's always been the, mm-hmm. the historical pendulum swing. Uh, but we need to have that serious check and balance. And that is why it is so very important that all the institutions do their job. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, we have, as Canadians, have got to get educated, it seems to me. We've got to get educated as what it, what does it mean to live in a representative democracy, a constitutional mm-hmm. representative democracy. And mm-hmm. we have, we have lost, we have lost that understanding. I mean, Everything from anyhow, we, we, we could be here all night, but uh, but uh, this is yeah. good. But yeah. I, I was th- thinking of, you know, like things like history, you know, um, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, my growing up in Newfoundland uh, in the curriculum that I went through uh, in school, uh, history was big. I mean, uh, like it was my by far my favorite thing going through, you know, uh, my uh, high school years and all the rest of it. But history was like, I mean, I just loved history. I couldn't get, get enough of it. And, um, Mm -hmm. and we need to get back to that simply because we've got to understand what went on before, because if we think we know everything now and something happens that has already gone on before, we think it's new, but it's not new. And, And that's the thing, like human experience is constantly rhyming. It's, you know, we, we go mm-hmm. through these phases um, where we make mistakes. And, and that's why I think as a, as a society at large, I, like, I, I look at it, um, you know, maybe it's beca- again, because of my Newfoundland uh, experience, but I had tremendous respect for my grandparents. We would sit around like, I mean, obviously it was before the computer age and all the rest of it, but, but sitting around in the kitchen with the wood stove going and my grandfather and grandmother telling me stories about their, their background and all that they went through and, and all the rest of it, like this, this constant telling of the story is something that is absolutely lost today because the young people are not learning those stories from their parents. If their parents are even around, because instead our young people are are being raised by the video game rather than by the parents and the grandparents and having the respect for the elders. My word. I mean, 
even though uh you know there there's instances of the past you, you make reference but i remember uh there, there was this this tremendous amount of respect for the uh for the older people and yes sometimes it was too much you know obviously you know we we know about the abuses of the past but we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and we've got to get back to understanding why we are where we are why is it that this particular country has had so much freedom and so many blessings and another country around the world who would have all kinds of resources have all kinds of whatever but yet do not have the same freedoms that we have historically had except what we see developing now well why is that i mean we we need to kind of have curiosity again uh, to come back and say let's search for those answers and let's try to figure it out i mean i i think i've got some answers uh, you know of what i've been taught what i've seen what i've read you know i and i do think the moral framework has a has a big part to play i do think the sense of common decency and and the respect we we talked about here earlier about the whole idea that in the past yes there was corruption and yes it was hidden but it was hidden because it was seen as bad whereas today corruption is like who really cares right um you know i'm the one in power mm -hmm. i can do what i like my mm -hmm. friend i tell you we could uh we could keep on going i'm willing <laughs> to keep chatting but uh anyhow i know uh i i don't want to wear out the uh, patience of the saints who are listening <laughs> but uh <laughs> yeah. sure but uh, anyhow, any final thoughts as we've we, we've uh, we've covered a lot of ground here today, and uh, it's been great. It's been great to touch base with you again, Tom. And, and I, I just was so excited when I saw uh, this lawsuit going, and I said, "Like, yes, this if there's anything that we need, it is that because that is helping to to be uh, forcing government to be accountable, and that you know there's consequences for their actions." Mm -hmm. Yeah, I you know what we've had a really interesting conversation, so I'll leave it at that. That I guess the last thing I would say is you know buy your book and buy mine too. Yes, um, <laughs> and, you know buy them buy them as a gift set. And the reason I say this and and yep. you know the night we launched the book, a good friend of mine, a former police officer. Uh, we were on a, a Twitter space and he said, you know what, buy Tom's book for people that were against the convoy. Right. You know, buy it for that reason. So in, you know, the case of your book, maybe, you know, lawyers out there should be buying your book for people that were against the convoy, you know, because your book unpacks a lot of the, the legal aspect, the behind the scenes. And it talks about the pressure Canadians were under and what moved them to take such um, you know, determined actions. So, yeah. you know, I think that the, the books are coming out and, and don't be afraid to buy everybody's books, read about it, learn about it, find out who the people are and, and what's their story. Why did they do what they did? And then, yeah. like I said, read your book because it gives a, a more of a legal, uh, framework to this. Cause I think it's important that people understand a, what moved a 25-year Army veteran to go directly against his own government in the city of Ottawa? What moves yeah. a lawyer to write about the legal um, 
in, in other aspects of, of what the government did to its own citizens. You know, that's an important thing. It's not just the words in the book, but it's, it's what are the attributes of the people that are writing these books? Why did they do it? Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. as important as the actual story. So yeah. Yeah. I'll leave no, it actually, at that. Well, thank you so very much. Uh, I, always a, a pleasure and uh, look forward to uh, meeting up with you somewhere on the book tours. Maybe, maybe we should do some book tours together yeah. or something. Just That would be great. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> okay, folks. Well, yeah. I want to thank you for taking the time today and to spend with us. I know like normally I uh, have been cutting off these programs at around 30 minutes and so forth. But tonight I just said, hey, you know what? Maybe we should just continue the conversation um, because sometimes it helps us to to just kind of allow the conversation to go. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that I was uh, growing up in Newfoundland and we would have, uh, it, it was like a form of entertainment uh, to go down uh, to my grandparents' house where it was kind of like the collecting place where all of the various family members and neighbors would come and sit around the fire and, uh, you know, chat about the old times uh, where my grandfather would go in the woods or when he was a little boy and he, he took that, that axe that was frozen and then he decided he was going to lick the, lick this, the, uh, the ice off of his axe and he ended up having to walk like a bunch of kilometers home with an axe stuck to his face because of, because of that crazy thing. Well, guess what? As a child, I decided I was not going to lick any axe uh, because I did not want to go through what my grandfather went through. And I think the point of the matter is this. We need to be understanding what went on in the past so we don't make the mistakes of the future. And that, to me, is the key. And it is the reason why the story of the convoy, the story of people like Tom Morazzo, who shared their story, it's why I wrote what I wrote as we incorporate our experiences together. And as you experience Canada today, what have you been learning What have your parents learned? Did you learn from them? These are important lessons that we need to pass on on to the next generation. And so thank you for being with us. And remember to subscribe to our podcast. Uh, Go to firstfreedoms.ca. Sign up for our newsletter. And Tom, before I go, where can people find you on the internet? So to purchase the book, um, it's on Amazon. Uh, just Tom Morazzo will get you to my my book. It's the only one I've ever written. Um, you can also buy it at the veteransforfreedom.ca. So veterans for number four freedom.ca. But my stomping grounds on social media is pretty much Twitter. That's uh, that's easiest for me. I'm on Facebook and stuff, but I just I don't get Facebook. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me anymore. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm definitely on Facebook. Mostly my favorite place is Twitter. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you so much, Tom. And thank you folks for coming and watching and spending some time with us. And until next time, I'm Barry Bassett. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. 
Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca